Are you comfortable? I can't promise that that will continue to be the case because when we hear from God's word, the Holy Spirit is active in our midst and does as the Holy Spirit wills. But the Holy Spirit is the best pastor of all. And if you're feeling um, uncomfortable, it's likely that you're gonna feel more comfortable. If you need a wake up call, it might just be that you get one. Um, and uh, the Spirit does and wills as the Spirit wishes when the Word of God is proclaimed. Let's begin with prayer. Gracious God, as we gather around your Word and consider these last words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, we pray that your Spirit would teach us and that we would become better disciples of you as a result. Be with us in whatever stage of our spiritual journey we are at. Meet us where we are, O God as you did with the 11 on the mountain in Galilee, in Jesus' name, amen. Just a little point of orientation. Um, there are background notes that um, I produce every week for you um, that I encourage you to take home and read. Um, I give the highlights mostly in the sermon, uh, but there's material there that is for your benefit and edification if you wish afterwards. And you'll find that many of the points that are given in the sermon will um, be brought home a little bit more uh, in depth if you refer to the notes. There is an outline, uh, the single page sheet that says Jesus's speech from the throne, and that's going to guide us through our discussion this afternoon. Jesus's speech from the throne, a bit of a misnomer, because in many ways, Ironically, the cross was Jesus's throne. What an absurd place for one to exercise reign. But that's the nature of Jesus's upside down kingdom. It's a top bottom, bottom top kingdom. And so Jesus, after he has died on the cross and after he has literally bodily risen from the dead on the third day, is now alive and surprising those and scaring some of the people who realized just a few days ago he was dead. So with this, we come to the end of the Gospel of Matthew. We have been preaching through it for the past almost two years, not quite. And now we're at the end of chapter 28. And this week, and also next week, we'll be looking at this most important text. In some ways, it is the climax of the whole Gospel of Matthew, and it contains our marching orders. And we are to note well those orders. And we will see that there is a background to these marching orders. There's a basis for the marching orders, and there is a booster behind the marching orders. But that's getting a bit ahead of ourselves. Let's remind ourselves of where we are in the text of Matthew. Jesus has appeared to uh, the women and told them to go and tell the disciples that Jesus is alive. An angel and Jesus both appear to the women in the beginning of chapter 28, and they say, make your way towards Galilee where you will see Jesus who has been resurrected from the dead. And we noticed last week that just the language of somebody being resurrected from the dead is a game changer. Uh, Jesus bodily rose from the dead. There's an ample evidence for that. We know 
where it happened, when it happened. This is not a made-up story. This is something for which there's concrete evidence and for which people, including lawyers and others who investigate the evidence, find to be very compelling. So here we are at the beginning of our gospel, and we come to what has been called the great omission. Uh, did I say the great omission? I meant to say the great commission. But interestingly, if you look at the history of the church, it wasn't until the 1800s, the 1800s, that Christians began to realize that this text pertained to them. Even in the time of the Protestant Reformation, when so much of the gospel was reclaimed and rejuvenated, Calvin and others still argued against, uh, with the majority, that these were words that Jesus gave to his disciples, and they went around the Mediterranean, and they, uh, they, they did their thing. This does not apply to us. But as you will see from looking at the text in more detail, these clearly apply to us, even though the Great Commission was given to Jesus' disciples. So it can aptly be called the Great Omission. And it wasn't until one of the hymns of Isaac Watts that came in the 1700s when the term was first, so far as we know, used the Great Commission. It's a good term, and it describes Jesus's speech from the throne. And if there's one thing we want to take away from our message today, it is that it should not be the Great Omission. It is Jesus's marching orders to his disciples, and it's one that's rooted in love. It's one that's rooted in good news. This is not Bible thumping. This is not some kind of jihadism. This is spreading the good news of the message of Jesus Christ to people who are wanting to welcome it. So let's look first of all then at the background to the Great Commission. And I wanna ask a couple of questions, uh, rhetorical questions, because I don't want to embarrass you, but uh, some of us here are theology students. Um, others of us here are newcomers, but regardless, I want to remind us that in the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish Old Testament, the last book of the Bible is Second Chronicles. And the last chapter of the last book of the Bible is Second Chronicles chapter 36, verses 22 to 23. So Jesus is here picking up on two endings to the Old Testament. The Jewish Bible, which Jesus affirmed and upheld and enriched through his teaching. There are two pieces of background. One is 2 Chronicles chapter 36, 22 to 23, that we will look at in a moment. And the other is the speech of Moses at the end of Deuteronomy. The five books of Moses, which were so important to the Jewish people and which continue to be of primary importance, end at an odd place. They end with Moses looking out over the promised land and God telling Moses that there's a land that is going to be conquered by a next generation. But Moses is not going to go to that land. He's not going to be allowed to go into it. He sees it. And someone who is coming in the wake of Moses, Joshua, is going to be the one who enters the land and who takes it. So every time the Jews go through this cycle of reading the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they come to this end point and they realize it's not finished yet. There's more to come. And they think towards God's words to Moses' successor, Joshua, about how he would be empowered and how he would take the land, as it were. 
And so the words that we read a few minutes ago in the Great Commission pick up on this theme because here Jesus, like the new Moses, goes on top of a mountain and he commissions others to, as it were, take the land, to go into this promised land and to share the good news of the message, the saving message of Jesus to people all across the world. And then the other thing which, um, again, I just learned this week, but which I found really striking, is that these words also echo the end of the Jewish Bible. Turn on page 7 of your handout to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 22 and 23. These, my friends, are the last words of the Hebrew Bible. And I want to invite you to see what parallels there are with the Great Commission. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation through all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Well, I said I was going to ask you rhetorically, so you might not be ready for this, but if you are willing to, it'd be interesting just to hear what similarities you see between the Great Commission and these last words um, of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, what things are the same with the Great Commission that you can see in these few verses as you look at them again, knowing that I'm now asking for real? Yes, Cyrus has been given all the kingdoms of the earth. That's the backdrop for his edict. Uh, great, thank you, Andrew. Yes, it says that the Lord be with you, right. Yeah, so here is a promise of God's presence. It is based upon this text that many people think that um, the Great Commission is literally Jesus' speech from the throne. It is a royal edict. Recall, too, that Cyrus was a proto-Messianic figure. He was um, sort of a, a foreshadowing of the Messiah. And so here at the end of the Jewish Old Testament, there is this Messianic figure who's talking about the Messiah, as it were, this Cyrus figure, this proto-Messiah being given all of the kingdoms of the earth. And then it invites people um, among all of the people uh, to go up to Jerusalem to help rebuild what? The temple. Yeah. And have we had discussions earlier in the Gospel of Matthew and over the past few weeks when we realized that Jesus, when he died on the cross and when he rose again, was in effect rebuilding the temple. They said to him when he was dying on the cross, you who said that the temple could be destroyed and built up in three days, what a fool you are. 
And there Jesus hanging on the cross is aware that he is uh, changing the paradigm from the temple, a local geographic place where people meet God, to his risen self, where today uh, we aren't at a temple. We're simply gathering around the risen Jesus and around his word to be the people of God and to experience the presence of God. So Matthew, the Jewish writer of the most Jewish of all of the Gospels, is aware of these things as he's writing. And we get the motif then of a Moses, uh, someone to come in the wake of Moses, a super Moses to follow in his path, a Joshua figure as it were, and then the real Messiah who would fulfill these words. That's the first part of the background of the Great Commission. The second part is the narrative setting, which we see in the text proper. And the narrative setting is cast in verses 16 to 18a, and it takes us to Galilee. So the 11 disciples proceeded to the Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had instructed them. And upon seeing him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Few things to note as we go. There are only 11 disciples. There were 12, but Judas has betrayed uh, Jesus and has gone and hung himself. So from the beginning of the Great Commission, we're dealing with a flawed group of people. There should have been 12, but there are only 11. Moreover, these are probably the people who are doubting as well as worshiping. They have mixed emotions. Yes, they worship Jesus, and it's wonderful that they do and appropriate they do, but then Matthew owns up to the truth and says, but some doubted. I've heard some people tell me that uh, they're going to do uh, greater things for the kingdom of God when they get more faith. But right now, they're just kind of on a pilgrimage. They don't have enough faith. They're swimming in a bit of doubt. Uh, they haven't quite got their act together. My friends, <laughs> it's not so much about you as about the power of God and the presence of God and a message that's to be given to go into the world and to share the good news of Jesus. He knows you're flawed. It's because we're flawed that he died in the first place. And so we go as not 12, but as 11. And we go uh, filled with worship, but also filled with doubt. I don't know what your spiritual pilgrimage consists of. Maybe you have the gift of faith and doubt very little. But I have to confess that um, my faith is at times interlaced with times of doubt. I think it's, it's not a good thing, but it's simply the product of an active mind where you're constantly kind of critically thinking and evaluating. And as long as we don't dwell on those doubts, and as long as we continue to stay within the community of faith and to explore God's word and to uh, look into these difficulties that you might be having, it's okay. Moving on to verse 18, and approaching, Jesus spoke to them. Those words approaching sound odd, or maybe they don't. But this is the only other time apart from the transfiguration in the Gospels, um, I believe it's the Gospels, but it might only be Matthew, when Jesus approaches a group of people. The last time was in the transfiguration, and in the transfiguration, Peter had stuck his foot in his mouth and uh, made some crazy comment about building booths. And basically, uh, God interrupted and said, keep quiet, um, listen to my son. And there was a, uh, a luminous cloud that surrounded them. And the disciples who were there, Peter, James, and John, were just filled with fear. 
Here are these disciples who have deserted Jesus. There are only 11 of them. They fulfill Jesus' command to go to the Galilee, but they're probably wondering, are we in trouble? We deserted him. This is going to be kind of awkward. We're seeing the risen Christ after we have deeply disappointed him. And it says, and approaching. In the, in the story of the transfiguration, we're actually told that when Jesus last approached, and there are parallels here between this and the transfiguration that are quite intentional, Jesus touched them. And he said, don't be afraid. My friends, Jesus continues to be the pastor. And to people who are inept, people who are filled with doubt, but people who are on the journey, Jesus takes the initiative. And he comes toward us. And he says... Don't be afraid. It's okay. When the risen Jesus appeared to the two women outside the tomb, he said, go and tell my brethren that I'm going to Galilee. My brethren, what a term for those who had deserted Jesus and who had turned their backs on him at a critical time. One of the characteristics of a disciple that we see from the disciples of John the Baptist is when your uh, guru, when your um, hero, when your mentor dies, you bury him. Matthew's quite explicit that when John died, it says his disciples took his body and buried him. The disciples have come up short on this end. And approaching them, Jesus spoke to them. Those are some lessons from the narrative setting. From the Old Testament background, we were reminded that Jesus is the new Moses and that Jesus is also the Messiah, and that he's fulfilling the Old Testament. Matthew ends his gospel as if to say, folks, this is the fulfillment. It's the same ending as we find in the Old Testament. The Messiah is here. And from the narrative setting, we learn that imperfect disciples can be encouraged by the tangible presence of a Jesus who comes toward you. He makes the move. He's willing to take the initiative to help bridge the gap. And that he did when he died on the cross. Now we come secondly to the basis for the Great Commission, which is in verses, in verse um, 18b. And approaching, Jesus spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and upon the earth. All authority has been given to me in heaven and upon the earth. Jesus is affirming the fact that through his death and through his resurrection and through his affirmed lordship and through his obedience to the will of the Father to go to the cross and to be willing to die for our sins, that God has given him all authority in heaven and on earth. And it's that person who's inviting us to go into the world and share the good news. It's not a group of people who just kind of feel as though uh, this is something they should do. You are not simply a, a byproduct of your culture because you were raised in a Christian home and now you feel obliged, rather like the Mormons, to just kind of go and do your missionary stint because that's what you're supposed to do. My friends, this is the risen Jesus, the paradigm changer, who says, I have all authority been given to me by God in earth and um, in heaven and upon the earth. And then comes the message. What greater basis, what greater rationale uh, could, could there be? None at all. This is an authority that's been given by God, who is taking up also the words of another Old Testament figure, 
namely the heavenly son of man in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Turn to it quickly on page 7 again. You'll see that God gives authority to one who's called a son of man. I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the ancient one. That is, the son of man is presented to the ancient one who is God and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. That is the, the backdrop to the basis for the Great Commission. I am the heavenly son of, son of man. I have been commissioned by God. And now that I have fulfilled his destiny for me, and that I am caught up in the clouds on my way back to heaven, as it were, having come from the under earth, I've been given authority by God. And now comes, of course, the Great Commission itself. You'll notice that there are some words here that are in italics, going, baptizing, and teaching. These are words that are dependent upon the main verb, which is underlined. Therefore, going, make disciples of all of the nations. Make disciples. Matthew, rarely, has made a noun, disciple, and turned it into a verb, to cause, to make disciples. Uh, become a disciple-making uh, person as you move out, going to all of the nations. What does it mean to make a disciple? You're a disciple if you're a follower of Jesus, but there's so much more to it than that. And in fact, what we've been doing through our lessons in the Gospel of Matthew for the past two years is, whether we realized it or not, is equipping ourselves as disciples. You see, Matthew was a disciple. And for one, he was a scribe. He was somebody who was doing what some of you are doing right now, taking notes, uh, learning more about Jesus, chronicling the teachings and the activity of Jesus. And a disciple is to be somebody who is kind of like, uh, well, it's a person who finds a teacher and studies under that teacher, the only teacher being Jesus. They are at the bidding of that teacher. I. I'm reminded of the story of the feeding of the 5,000 when I was going back in Matthew and looking at what a disciple does. The disciples are with a group of people and they notice that the crowd's getting hungry and they say, Jesus, you ought to do something. These people are far away, they're getting hungry. And Jesus turns to the disciples and this is the kind of thing you're supposed to do. Well, why don't you feed them? They said, we can't feed them. We only got a couple of fish. And Jesus um, says, what have you got? And then Jesus is the one who transforms the food and who makes it adequate. And then he has the food and he makes his disciples distribute it. And after the crowd has eaten, the disciples pick up the leftovers and they manage it. They're there to do his bidding. They're having fellowship with him. They're learning from him. They're interacting with him. And so when Jesus tells us to make disciples of the nations, he's telling us that we are commissioned to encourage people to become followers of Jesus, who study his word, who follow his teachings, who take notes from his Bible, as it were. And Matthew had in mind that he was going to write what is literally a disciple maker's handbook. Nothing could be closer to a disciple maker's handbook than the Gospel of Matthew. 
So we have been doing that process for the past few years. Making disciples consists of having people who are followers of Jesus, inviting them to follow Jesus, to have him as their master. And the way that Jesus tells us to do it is not to be a parked car, but to go. But then there are two participles here, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all things whatsoever that I have commanded you. Let's look at these two things quickly in turn. First of all is baptizing them. Well, gosh, you're an Anglican, you're maybe even a Baptist. Uh, what's, what's new and different about this? Actually, it is quite new and it is quite different because Jewish baptism was not um, the same as Christian baptism. The baptism of John is not the same as this baptism. And so the baptizing that's taking place is kind of a new sacrament, as it were. It's uh, in the process of being formed, and we get an idea of it when we look at baptism in the New Testament. People come and confess their sins, they repent of their sins, and they uh, invite Jesus to be their Lord and their Master. And in testimony to that, they are washed in water as a symbol of uh, spiritual rebirth, and they pledge themselves to be followers of Jesus. The term here is baptizing into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And to be baptized into the name of someone is to be taken under their domain. It is actually to be, um, in a sense, owned by. It's to be in solidarity with. It is to be in fellowship. And here, because Matthew is summarizing his gospel and is summarizing the teaching of Jesus, he has them not just baptized into the name of the Son, but into the name of the Father of the Son and into the name of the Holy Spirit, who played key roles throughout this whole gospel. So we are being baptized in um, solidarity with, in association with, in commitment to the panoply of God, which is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yes, this became a baptismal formula later in the church and a Trinitarian one and a good one at that. It's not the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it is the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One name, three persons. So there clearly is here an anticipation of the Trinity. But in this context, in Matthew's context, uh, here in these words of Jesus at this particular time, it is a summary of becoming identified with God my friends, I don't know where you are in your journey. Some of you in your spiritual journey are quite an early stage. Some of you are further along. But I want to encourage you to consider allying yourself with Jesus. Because when you do, you're allying yourself with the totality of God. And you are willing to become a follower of Jesus who promises a challenging life, but a life that is eternal. And it's a life that is filled with meaning and gives purpose. We are all looking for purpose and meaning in life. And believe me, friends, believe me, friends, may the Spirit of God confirm it in your hearts. This is where to find meaning in life. Baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them. Not uh, forcing the gospel down their throats, not holding a crusade, but teaching them to obey all of the things whatsoever that I have commanded you. In other words, that Jesus has commanded the disciples during the whole course of the gospel of Matthew. 
So take the Gospel of Matthew, take this sermon series, if you will, and some of the notes that come from it and consider it to be a backbone of the kinds of things that we are to encourage people to do. Not the least the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 to 7. That is probably the meaning of the term mountain and why the mountain is referred to here. It's the mountain of the good news of Jesus bringing a message of hope to the poor, of salvation to the hopeless. And then finally, we have the background of the Great Commission, the basis for the Great Commission, and we have the booster behind the Great Commission. It's clear by a comparison of other texts in which the divine presence is offered that this is offered as empowerment to do the task. Jesus isn't simply reminding us that he's going to be with us because it's a truth, but he's saying in effect, I'm going to be there to help you. I'm going to be the one who's enabling you. And as he said to Moses a long time ago, back in the Old Testament, I will put words in your mouth. So we come really all the way around to Moses and back to Exodus chapter 3 when God commissioned Moses. Moses protested and he said, you know, I, 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 I stumble in my speech. And God said, I noticed that. But I will be with you. I will put words in your mouth. Well, I, I don't think I really want to do this. I will be with you. When he commissioned Jeremiah the same, a young man, I'm not old enough. I will be with you. And the same with Gideon in Judges chapter 6. Gosh, who am I to go to war against these people? I will be with you. And so we end the Gospel of Matthew with the same words with which the Gospel began. This is one who will be named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins and he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. When police go and do their difficult work, they have taser guns and weapons and other things, cars. When we go and do our mission of peace, we have the presence of the living God empowering us to do his will, which is to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the whole world. May you sense that power, and may the church in our age be guilty not of the great omission, but be agents of the great commission. Amen.